Hello, and welcome to the Good News Podcast, where we try to share the good news of Christ's salvation. We'll try to upload a new message every week for you. For more information, or to send us a comment, please visit us at www.gathered.com. Thank you. The following message was given by David Oliver of Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, at the Brookfield Gospel Hall in Brookfield, Connecticut, in the fall of 2003. It was part of a two-week seminar series on future events entitled Finding Security in an Uncertain World. For outlines of these messages, please go to www.gather.com. I'm here again tonight. There may be a variety of scriptures that we could read together. And this look at one in Psalm 2. The book of Psalms, chapter 2. And we will read at verse 1. These verses have not yet been fulfilled. Their expression is very clear at the cross, but they have not yet been fulfilled. Why do the heathen rage, the nations, the Gentiles, rage? And the peoples imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now, the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. you find the end of your Old Testament, then just overlook Malachi on the way back and you'll be at Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. Behold, verse 1, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives rather shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great battle, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the east and south, and ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. The Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee, and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at the even time it shall be light. Now, let's go back for a moment to the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 38. 
What we read in Psalm 2 and what we read in Zechariah 14 belong together. All the nations gathered together. But what we'll look at here is different in Ezekiel chapter 38. Verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against God, the land of Megan, the chief prince of Meshach. Now, another translation, rather than the chief prince, uh, another translation gives it the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And uh, there are those that tell us that the prince of Rosh, which is translated the chief prince, the prince of Rosh is really the word from which Russia comes, and Meshach, the word from which to which Moscow is related, and Tubal or Tobolsk, all those words would be familiar to us today, and there seems to be a connection between them and the present places in the Russia area. And I will, now let me see where we are reading here, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, verse 3, Behold, I am against thee, O God, the chief prince, or prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth on all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands, and the house of the garment of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. And verse 11, And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I think that's a very important uh, expression. To the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the middle or the midst of the land. And at verse uh, 15, And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north part, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company, a mighty army, and thou shalt come up against my people Israel, and my people of Israel, as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days, and I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me, when I shall be sanctified in the O God before their eyes. Now, down at the end of the chapter, this is how God will be sanctified. Verse 22, And I will plead against them with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now this is continued in the chapter 39, verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto God a place there of grave in Israel, the valley of the passengers, on the east of the sea, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers, and there shall they bury God and all his multitude, and they shall call it the valley of Harmon God. And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying them, that they may cleanse the land, yea, all the people of the land shall bury them, 
and that shall be to them a renown the day that I shall be glorified, saith the Lord God. Now that is a separate battle, a separate time. Daniel chapter 11 for a third prophecy regarding a battle. Daniel chapter 11. And uh, just look at verse 36 and you will recognize that this is a description of the man of sin. Verse 36, this man called Antichrist so often, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. So the indignation is that image that he puts in the, or himself in the temple of God, and until all the results of that are accomplished, he is going to prosper. And down now at verse 40, and at that time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries, and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand upon also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So you see this man of sin attacked from the north and south will now counterattack against these powers, and he will reach into not only the glorious land, which would be Israel, but many other countries, and he will invade these countries throughout the Middle East, including Egypt. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to the end, and none shall help him. Now, in the book of the Revelation, two other readings I think will be sufficient. This goes back to the first two passages that we read, and we'll read in chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, we read in Psalm 2 about all the nations or the rulers and the kings of the earth uniting against the Lord and against his Christ. And they say, let us cast his bands from us. Let us be finished with God's restrictions against us. And by the Lord, it says, laugh at them. They'll have them in derision. And he says, I've set my king on my holy hill Zion. I'm going to set my king in Zion. Nothing can stop that. But this is the attempt, the last desperate attempt of Satan to thwart the purpose of God for his son. In Revelation chapter 16, we're looking at the sixth vial and it speaks about, in verse 12, the river Euphrates being dried up, and it makes the way of the kings of the east. And then he says in verse 13, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. 
Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. And just in chapter 19, another account of the same thing, the culmination of it, chapter 11 and verse 14, the coming of the Lord Jesus himself and the armies which are, were in heaven followed him upon white horses. And verse 15, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that he might smite the nations. Now down at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies, gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse, that would be the Lord Jesus, and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire. Now tonight, I want to look with you at what... A title, The Short Mother of All Wars. This is the greatest of all the battles that will be fought with military on the earth, and it will be a short war and a decisive war as well. And with that, I want to look just over this seven year period of time at three battles that are outlined for us. We have read about them, so let me just sort them out with you, and uh, we'll look at two other battles. Uh, as well, that are not in the future. One of them is in the past, and one of them is in the present. But for the moment, we will look at these future battles that are prophesied uh, in the passage that we have read together. The three battles, let me just outline them for you very quickly. I don't want you to get seasick with a crooked transparency. Uh, first of all, what we read about in Ezekiel 38 and going into chapter 39 is what I would call an unexpected war. I think I need to explain that title. Then there is an animosity among kings, the king from the north, which would be from the Syrian area, and the king from the south, which would be from the area of Egypt, and there has been an ongoing animosity against the uh, nation of Israel and this man who is protecting the nation of Israel, and that's an unrelenting war. It's just back and forth, back and forth, down through the ages, and we'll come to the time of the end when there is now another decisive battle involving the king of the north and the king of the south against the beast or against the man of sin uh, whom we have looked at. And then finally, here's an unplanned war. Now, the armies are all there under a very careful plan. But the battle turns out to be a war that they did not plan on executing. So let us look together at those three future wars, invasions, and the ultimate final war, the Battle of Armageddon, it's called, uh, given to us here in the passages we have read in Revelation. 
Three things that you'll see that I want to look at in each one of these is the intention, the invasion, and the interruption. The intention, as far as this first war is concerned, is that the beast has signed, this man of sin, has signed a treaty for seven years to protect Israel, to secure their boundaries, and I would take it that he's, he is guaranteeing to them peace and safety. Now, I should tell you this, in case you don't know, uh, what I'm going to tell you is not what everybody that's studying this subject will tell you. There are some people that will place this battle in the middle of this seven-year period of time. There are some people that will place it at the end of the seven-year period of time. And some people that will place it in the last part of this period of time. I am suggesting to you that this battle takes place in the first half of this period of time. It may even take place very early in the seven-year period. My reason for saying that is simply this. Did you notice in our reading that this group of nations say that they will come up against the unwalled cities that are dwelling in security? So I would take it that that's that first part of the week when they finally let down their barriers, when they finally feel we have a guarantee of this mighty power, the beast himself, and who will secure our boundaries and he's telling us he will give us peace and safety. And when these individuals see the, 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 the walls down, they say, this is our opportunity. Now, I have a map here. I didn't check to see how visible that is. Well, you can get something of the idea. This is a map of the Persian Empire, and I'm not using it for the Persian Empire. I'm just using it because it's the only map I could come up with that I could reproduce for you at this point. But, you'll notice here is Israel. Here is Jerusalem. And then away over here, for example, in our day, this is Iraq over in this area. And of course, Egypt down here. And uh, so, that just gives you there's the Mediterranean Sea and moving up toward into the Russian area up here. So, it just gives you something of a perspective of, of what we're looking at. Now, the nations that are involved in this unexpected war that we're looking at are nations that are identified with Russia, with Moscow, with Tobolsk, also identified with Libya and with uh, nations down in this area and then some of the nations that are over around here. Those are the national groups that belong there. Uh, I need to be careful here because I, I'm not a prophet and I'm not at liberty to tell you precisely what it means but I will give you a suggestion of what I see. Because even if the man of sin is able to guarantee peace and safety and work it out with the Muslim nations, there is something smoldering underneath. I don't know how he will possibly be able to uh, calm this animosity of the Muslim nations, the Arab nations, against Israel. Because as far as they are concerned, no matter what they say, there is one basic problem that's continuing to the present time. They do not want to admit that Israel has any right to that land. In fact, the right that Israel claims to that land is through Isaac, through Abraham and Isaac. And they claim the right to that land through Abraham and Ishmael. And it's east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. They are, there's just a, a, a problem there that will, will really never be resolved until the ultimate question is answered that we'll look at tomorrow night, and that is, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And so, uh, 
As far as that animosity is concerned, I can understand that Russia, who at times has been the, the uh, financier, the backer of the Arab nations, always just waiting to kind of uh, undercut where the Western world has uh, been working, uh, including some of the opposition to the recent war in Iraq, um, so that the Russian area could very easily be aligned with several forces in this area, and just waiting now till the world just claims that this Israel problem is resolved, and at the very beginning of that period of time, they make an invasion down through this area, join forces here, and come into the land, and they come uh, marauding down through here with the intent of wiping off these villages that are unprotected because they are comfortable being at peace. Uh, the remarkable thing, which I think you probably noticed in our reading, is this. Going back to the invasion, this confederacy that includes Russia and its various states will join with forces from the uh, Middle East, the Arab world, and they will begin to uh, pick up this, this easy prey, not being defended. And as they get in the mountains on the northern part, of Israel, that would be the Golan Heights up in that area, suddenly God himself will intervene, most remarkable. And natural catastrophes will stop this army. Great hailstones, actually the Lord speaks about raining on them blood and, and all this, so that this invading army, I can picture it this way, mired in the mud of, of the Golan Heights, unable to move forward and weather conditions making it absolutely impossible for them. And actually, by the intervention of the mighty hand of God, God sanctifies himself. God makes himself known even at this point among the nations. And with almighty power, just using natural disaster, he puts his hook in them and stops them. And the fact is that those armies die. It will take them months, seven months, to clean up all the dead bodies and all the debris that are a result of that. And it speaks about a place to bury them out on the east part, out by the sea. So, that is the interruption, first of all, in this unexpected battle. But let us move down now to the second one, this unrelenting war. And uh, this one, according to Daniel chapter 11, where we read, will take place at the time of the end. And... Even while this man of sin seems to be prospering, dominating the whole region, there is a native problem that still is against him. Now, you can tell if you go back in recent history, about 20 years, that while there was uh, an agreement with Egypt for peace and safety at that time, Amor Sadat, there was still an opposition by the other Arab nations. So there's actually a rift in the Arab nations, potentially a rift, that involves the king of the south, which would be Egypt, and perhaps the Syrian empire, Damascus, and all that's connected with that, uh, as distinct from the other Arab nations. But at any rate, what happens here is the king from Syria and the king from Egypt decide that they will make war against this beast. This is their time to somehow or other destroy him who has gotten far too... To, uh, prosperous and heady with his thought that he is God. And so sometime in the second half 
of this week because it speaks about it being at the time of the end. They begin their invasion from the north and from the south. And this attack I'm suggesting takes place from the Arab world and motivated by the beast's insistence on a one world religion. You remember he has said that he himself is God. So it may very well be that they are making one deathly final struggle to oppose this idea of a one world religion. And so uh, they make their invasion against him, the beast himself. Now, I'm suggesting here that on this, and then notice I'm hedging very carefully because I'm only deducting what I can deduct from the prophetic statements. But, you see, uh, if the beast claims the Jewish temple, or allows the Jewish temple, and then sits in that Jewish temple, he is going to have to tramp on the toes of a Muslim world somehow or other claims that same area as sacred. And so it may very well be that that's really what triggers this event. These last strong outposts of the Muslim world, the first part of the week in this battle, perhaps most of the Muslim world destroyed. But here you have these men coming now against the beast and their intention is to somehow or other overcome him. Of course that ignites the fire of the beast. He is now no longer a man of peace. That's all been unmasked in the middle of the week in a man of tremendous devastation against all the believers. Israel especially, that he has guaranteed safety. He will go against the faithful in Israel to persecute them all through this 42-month period of time uh, right to the end. But now, he has been sent and he begins to move out into the whole area. Now, just to go back to the map for a moment. I know you came for a geography lesson, so here we are. From the south, moving up. From the north, Damascus moving down. And uh, so the beast himself now, against whom they're really mobilized, begins to move out into this whole territory. Somehow, these two areas down here, Moab is mentioned there, these two areas are spared from him. But he invades and defeats Egypt, and he is moving onward through this whole part of the world, over to Libya, over to this area, and he is successfully waging his counterattack against them when news coming out of the north and the east troubles him. Now, to me, when you put this all together, that brings us to this sixth seal that we have looked at in our sixth biogram that we have looked at in Revelation chapter 16. Because at that point, the river Euphrates is dried up and the armies from the east are plunging on through this area with Jerusalem as their objective. Now not only do you have this massive army, 200 million coming across through here, but then at the same time, evil spirits go out to all the kings of the earth to gather them together against Jerusalem. So not only does this beast hear of tidings from the east, the tidings from the north. And there seems to be now a gathering of all the kings of the world as they now begin to mobilize toward Jerusalem. And the reason for coming? The reason for coming is to oppose this man who is now falling from favor. Uh, and these men from the south and from the north have invaded him. And as he is now on his attack, counterattack, and just taking all the areas over, I think perhaps it could be that the other kings of the world begin to be all of them, 
he's going to come over and take all of our territories like a Hitler and nothing can stop him. And suddenly now, the armies of the world unite together as they have one purpose, stop the beast. We don't want this man to get all the power and have all the influence as far as all these territories are concerned. The unexpected war. The beginning of the week, God himself intervenes. And then this unrelenting war, the king of the north, king of the south, and they are going down the blistering defeat, and the, uh, the man of sin and the beast is moving out of his invasion. But then all these armies of the world begin to pour toward the center of the world, and they're gathered together by the Lord, according to what we have there in Revelation chapter 16. And he gathers them all together to the valley of Megiddo. Which is, looks like i got to go back to the map. In the northern part of the land, up here, there's actually an opening out from this valley out to the Mediterranean Sea, and then a large flat valley that is almost surrounded by hills and uh, it is described in an ideal battleground. I don't know if anything is an ideal battleground, battleground, but that's how it's described. Interestingly, at the present time, things are kind of secretive in that valley because right in the middle of the valley uh, there is this mysterious set of buildings that nobody will tell you what they are except that they are an Air Force installation. And actually the military might of Israel is centered there. Its strategic command is right there. And the planes flying in and out and the preparations and the, the uh, coordination of the Israel army is right there. I don't know how significant that is in this overall picture, but it could very well be a reason for coming now to the very nerve center of the uh, powers of the, the beast himself. And all the nations now begin pouring in from the north, from the east, and the beast who has been out here fighting his battles is now coming back to defend and actually, at this time, Jerusalem, I'm not sure by which armies, Jerusalem will be under siege. And actually, broken down. And the, the women ravaged, and the people, half of them being carried away. And it appears, at this moment, as if the nation of Israel will go into extinction. It is being brought to the very brink of extinction. These armies that have come in to begin with, these armies that have been now making Israel their battleground back and forth, the north and south, and now the armies of the world gather together on this one battlefield. But the unexpected part of this war is this. That just as all the armies of the world seem to be about able to defeat this man of sin who has promised peace and safety for Israel. And actually, they are about to wipe Israel off the map. The interruption comes. And out of heaven, in all his power and glory, comes the Lord Jesus. And at that point, this is why this is called, why I've called it an unplanned war. What was the plan for that war? All the kings of the earth united together against the beast. And suddenly, remember what happened on the day when the Lord Jesus was in Jerusalem at his trial? 
and Herod and Pilate who could not get along together suddenly were made friends together. How were they made friends? Because Pilate was opposed to Christ as a Roman leader. Herod was opposed to Christ. He said him at not. Enmity to Christ united a Pilate and a Herod. Enmity against God and against Christ will unite the armies of the east, the armies pouring in from all the world from the north, meeting in the valley of Megiddo for the, the battle against the beast. They will suddenly ally themselves with the beast because every one of them is against God and against his Christ. That's what we read in, in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth. Why would the heathen rage? And the, the people imagine something that's vain. It, there's no, no substance to it. The kings of the earth are united and, and they're rulers against the Lord and against his Christ. And they're saying, this is our chance. Who cares about the beast? Who cares about the armies coming in, perhaps from China and the Far East? Who cares about all those armies? Who cares about our differences? This is our chance to be finished with having to answer to God. Let's finish this war by dethroning God from his very throne. How long will that take to accomplish? Whom the Lord shall destroy with the breath of his mouth. The sword that goes out of his mouth. And all the armies of the world that have come together against one another, seeing him come, will unite against him. And just with the power of his word, all the ICBMs, all the smart bombs, all the whatever technology will be developed and ready and used at that period of time, will suddenly be neutralized and the armies of the world will be defeated and the beast himself and the false prophet will be cast alive into the lake of fire and this great battle against the armies of the world one against the other suddenly directed against God and against Christ will be brought into absolute defeat the Lord will stand up for Jerusalem according to Zechariah 14 that we read. And all these nations gathered together around Jerusalem to wipe Israel off the map. The Lord himself will destroy in his almighty power. That is the great battle that people talk about, the final battle, as it's sometimes called, and the, the battle of Armageddon. But I said there are two other battles. So let me go with you to a greater battle than that. I've been thinking all day about the children's course, but it's not in the book. Remember about David, and then it says, but Jesus fought a greater fight upon Mount Calvary. He conquered sin and death and hell by dying on the tree. I intended, actually, I knew there was another passage in the New Testament I wanted to read. I intended to read from Hebrews chapter 2, where the Lord Jesus is spoken of as destroying him that had the power of death. That is the devil. There's a greater battle than Armageddon, and it's already been fought. The tremendous forces of evil, all arrayed against Christ on that cross, with no armies from heaven and no friends to stand by him, alone. He went to battle in order to deliver you and to deliver me from sin. You have the picture? It's, uh, it was uh, just a little miniature, a little illustration of it. 
with uh, Private First Class, what was Jessica's last name? I was trying to think of it today, from West Virginia, over there in Iraq, in the hospital. And that special group of commandos come in there to deliver her from the enemy. Great story. A greater story. That I was held captive by sin. And one lone Savior came from heaven. And he didn't come with a secret invasion and get past all the other forces. But he faced all the battle of sin. You see, because of man's sin, we are rightly held captive to sin. And in order to deliver us from sin, he must justly, rightly, defeat the power of evil. And he came. He came in love. He came with a deep personal interest for you and for me, held captive by sin. And the only possible way for him to conquer and to deliver was by giving himself to a cross. The only possible way to be delivered from sin for you or for me was that he must shed his own precious blood. He must die to be the conqueror. All the touching love stories of human literature are just a partial retelling of the greatest love story of the ages. All the heroes of human literature are just in some degree a reminder of a loving Savior who came willingly to give his life to bow his head in death. Was he defeated in death? If the devil could have kept him from death, it would have been a defeat. But he came to die because in his death was the payment for sin. In his death was a righteous basis for deliverance. In his death is a mighty triumph. This one, by, as we sometimes sing, meekness and defeat, he trod the mead and crown. Trod all his foes, won the mead and crown. Trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. By giving himself, voluntarily dismissing his spirit, by dying willingly, lovingly, voluntarily, sacrificially, by dying, he defeated the enemy. And on the third day, he was raised again in mighty triumph. There is deliverance for every soul tonight. I wish it were possible in just telling you the truth of the gospel tonight to help you to understand your deliverance does not depend on you. You are bound. You are helpless. You are without any capability yourself. When we were yet without strength, at the right time, in God's appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. His death was the mightiest victory that the omnipotent God could ever accomplish. You think that's oratory? The mightiest victory that the almighty God could ever accomplish? Calvary will never be matched by anything that God ever does in the future. Nothing that God has ever done in the past, whatever it may be, will ever eclipse the mighty battle of Calvary. The great defeat. God himself alone could have accomplished that. Now, understand this. Just understand this for a moment. 
This is something that only God can do. But it is going to require death to do it. How can God do this? Because God is immortal. Death has absolutely no relevance in the realm of God. How is it possible for God by death to accomplish what only God can do? That's the great story of the Gospel. God became a man. Holy, sinless, able to be the sacrifice. And lovingly he went to the cross. No sword. Peter thought his sword would help the Lord Jesus. Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? I'm going into this battle with no weapons. I'm going into this battle to suffer the tremendous weight of the wrath of God. I'm going into this battle to die. There's no other way for a sinner to be delivered from his sins. I must die. Thank God he went to that cross. What a momentous day. We sang it this morning. I know there are some people that question whether it's really right to sing this. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Because God can't die, so how can I say thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I cannot explain the mystery, but I do know this. The man that hung on that tree was and never ceased to be my God. Incarnate, he gave his life for my salvation. I worship a God who gave his life for me on a cross. Amazing. But what a tremendous victory. The eternal Son of God incarnate died. The Bible speaks in a unique passage in Romans chapter 5 about the death of His Son. The death of God's Son. Why would God ever have designed such a strange unfathomable event because there was no other way to save to deliver one soul he cried in mighty triumph before he bowed his head willingly, voluntarily really dying and he cried it's finished, accomplished the battle is won and he bowed his head and died if you're interested in being delivered tonight it is only he who can deliver you. He who died for the ungodly is the Savior and the Deliverer. That's one battle. In the past, it's finished. He triumphed. He rose from the dead. We say sometimes, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He's victorious. He died? Yes, he did. He lived because death was defeated. And from the grave he arose, accepted as a sacrifice, accepted by God, and triumph, a living Savior, the victor at Calvary, is the Savior who can save you tonight. There's another battle. I'm borrowing from literature on this. Just for a moment. John Bunyan wrote a book entitled Holy War. Big long book. Uh, big. Uh, when I was in Sunday school, one of the prizes I got one year at the prize giving time was called The Marvelous City of Mansoul. It was actually a condensation, a, yes, a condensed version of a holy war. And uh, I read that. 
haven't got through the Holy War, but I read the commentary on it. But here's the picture in the Holy War. It pictured the soldiers of Emmanuel coming to the city of man's soul, coming to your soul, and all the battle army of Emmanuel is directed to saving man's soul from the usurper that has taken over. Great story. But it's actually painting the salvation of the sinner at the battle. There's a propaganda war going on, you understand, for your soul. Just as they used propaganda at the time of war, there's a propaganda war going on. There's a devil who is trying to convince you that salvation might be good if you know you're dying, but you don't want salvation now. Propaganda. Let the truth get through tonight. The best way to live is to live saved, knowing Christ. The best time to be saved is when you're young. Years ago, well, I don't know. 20 years ago, my wife and I were flying to Tampa, Florida. I was on the aisle, tired. My wife was in the middle, and there was an older man uh, by the window. To tell you the truth, he looked like an Indian chief. Just a big old Indian chief. And I was too tired to talk to him, and I didn't get into the conversation, but my wife somehow can't help but get into the conversation. And she was talking with him, and it wasn't too awfully long before things turned to a spiritual conversation. And the next thing you know, I can't keep out of this conversation. My ears perk up because he tells us she's saved. And so, uh, in the conversation, wanted to know how long he'd been saved. And he told us it was just, I think if I recall correctly, he said it was just a year and a half ago. Older man, just a year and a half ago. But he said, my only regret is that I wasn't saved when I was young. When you're young, there's a time to be saved. The propaganda is telling you, wait, not now. The devil doesn't know when the Lord Jesus is coming. The devil's always been ready for that coming with, with his counter plan. But he doesn't know when the Lord's coming. The devil doesn't know everything. But all the devil knows is this. If I keep that boy out of Christ through a gospel meeting tonight, maybe the Lord will come tonight and I'll have him. That's all he's working on. And the propaganda leaflets are falling, fluttering all over the place. Just wait, not now. Not now. And the armies of Emmanuel are getting the message across. There's deliverance. There's salvation. And that salvation is through the Lord Jesus Himself, the mighty conqueror. And what a night it would be if there were some man's soul that fell to Christ tonight. Some soul that opened the gate, brought down the walls of resistance, and said, I'm turning from my sin. I want God's salvation tonight. And I'm willing to take God's word about Christ. Wonderful truth. In essence, every soul that is saved gets this message from God. God is satisfied. That what God requires from our salvation, He has received in the death of Christ. Do you know what, what unites all the face of the world that do not have Christ as Savior to present. 
You know what you notice about? You have got to do something to satisfy God. That is true in heathen societies and it's true in religious Christendom in our world right now. You have got to do something to satisfy God. You know why that appeals to a world of men and women? Because it just appeals to the pride of human hearts. And that's the reason people have trouble getting salvation. Even people who know the gospel. You know why? You're trying to figure, what does God want me to do so I can be saved? The battle's done. What God requires to deliver your soul, He has received. The payment has been made. God is satisfied. He raised Christ from the dead. God's not asking you to do one thing to satisfy Him. He's asking you to just take down the gates. Submit to the Lord. Take His word. It's all finished. God is satisfied. God's not asking for anything from me. It's accomplished by the Savior Himself. You take His word tonight. Your city would be taken over by its rightful owner. You would be saved for eternity. And I would tell you this. You won't know you're saved because you have joy. Some people wait for a feeling to tell them they're saved. And if they feel good about it, then they must have been saved. Sometimes I think I've known of people that felt good about it, but they weren't saved. Don't go by feelings. But I'll tell you what, if you have God's word for it, that will never change. That's the authority you need. It's not good enough for you to go to God and say, God, I'm saved. And it would be good enough if God came to you and said to you tonight, you're saved. And you say, how could he do that? He would do it as he has done it for everyone in the meeting tonight who is saved. He just gives you his word. This is what he said. He that heareth my word and believeth him that sent me hath everlasting life. He'll never come into the judgment. He's passed from death in the city of Mansoul resisting the Lord. He's passed from death unto life. Just take his word. And leave the meeting tonight with another victory for heaven, a soul saved.